Hello, my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Catherine Bigelow, the director that, for a long time, when someone would go, oh, we should get a woman director for this, everybody in the message boards would be like, Catherine Bigelow, Catherine Bigelow, <laughs> Catherine Bigelow, because they seemingly knew nobody else. Well, because if you're the sort of person who writes on the IMDb message board, you're probably a 16-year-old boy. Yes. And what do you like in movies when you're a 16-year-old boy on the IMDb message board? You like big flashy camera moves really kind of muscular energy you like big men with big balls <laughs> i mean i don't know if big themes of loyalty and, <laughs> yeah. and friendship and yeah. betrayal yeah ostentatious big movies that are movies so i like point break Yes, you like Point Break. <laughs> because other than that, it's weird as you go through her career that she is the perfect auteurist study because you can see where she starts and you can see where she evolves from there. Because her first film, The Loveless, is a very arty take on like 50s youth pictures. And then in the 80s and 90s, she becomes very associated with studio action movies. Mm-hmm. K-19, The Widowmaker. She... she acquires a vague air of disrepute, I think. Which is weird because if you watch most of her movies and reading about her and interviews with her, she likes to talk about what she wanted to do was deconstruct genre tropes. She got started um, studying art in university. That's what she did for a big chunk of her career. And when she moved to New York, uh, she was roommates with Julian Schnabel. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was friends, of course, with Lizzie Borden. Not necessarily the crowd that you would expect her to hang out with if you've only seen Point Break. Yeah, because I think that Point Break is so associated with her because that was the big hit that that's what people think all of her movies are. Mm-hmm. But while she had that vague air of disrepute in the 90s and the early 2000s, now, thanks to The Hurt Locker and also Zero Dark Thirty, she's one of the most celebrated American filmmakers around. And she's certainly one of the two or three best-known female filmmakers. Without a doubt. I mean, she's the first woman to ever win an Oscar for Best Directing. Uh-huh. And I mean, she makes movies that are very, if you'll pardon me, masculine. Mm -hmm. You know, like she makes movies that are one associates with those kind of like film bro directors, you know, you're, you know, her ex-husband, James Cameron or a Quentin Tarantino or a David Fincher. But I do think that that's like the entry point to these movies. And it's the way that she kind of tells the stories that makes her filmmaking different from like an anonymous kind of journeyman director who are also making these blockbusters. Mm -hmm. I mean, Near Dark is the one that for a long time for The Hurt Locker, if you mentioned Catherine Bigelow's name, this vampire Western that she did that was not a success when it came out to the point that it was almost a lost film that they almost lost the negative. That's insane. Before it got scanned the DVD and it got saved right at the last minute was the one that people would go, oh, this is the masterpiece. And it is quite a beautiful, strange mm-hmm. movie, you know, just a, a weirdly paced and just and haunted it's just like with atmosphere. pure 80s as well. Oh, yeah. Is that like every frame exudes that kind of like music video look, but in a more language style than you're usually used to. I mean, all of her films are uh, symphonies of one perfect shots Mm -hmm. to mix my metaphors. uh, To a certain point, because like I said at the beginning, is that you can see her evolve through her filmmaking tackling a subject and approaching it in a way to like, how can I get the most out of this topic until that radically changed with The Hurt Locker? Mm -hmm. I mean, The Hurt Locker is a movie that everybody knows her uh, from. And it's a movie that I think I saw when it came out and I thought it was fine. 
And I was a little bit surprised that it was as popular as it was. I mean, it was released as an independent film Mm -hmm. or, well, a a studio indie, you know. I think it made something like $15 million at the box office. But uh, it ended up dominating all the critic polls that year. And you'll remember at the Oscars, it won Best Picture over Avatar. And now it's sort of one of the most beloved movies of its decade, I, I would speculate. And watching it just recently, I was like, eh. It's fine. It's not for me. (laughs) The style that she utilizes in this film is so far away from what she was kind of building up through up until Strange Days and K-19, The Widowmaker, that it's not something that I like. It's something that's also become every day, this handheld, shaky style. And I also, I think it was already sort of every day by the time it was. this movie was made, because with the handheld shaky cam in The Hurt Locker, it's coded as authentic Mm -hmm. like oh look at the docu-realism of this and it's coded as artier there's a film where it's only people in combat that i think is much more interesting than the film that she made where it's jeremy renner and anthony mackie and they're just out in the field doing these long kind of missions that you see them in the movie that sometimes there's a scene with a sniper where they're just sitting there forever and that kind of almost anti-action cinema i found really interesting but all the kind of rote stuff where it's like jeremy renner meets a kid um jeremy renner um wants to take revenge uh i can understand you'd be like oh it's a deconstruction of that stuff but it just didn't work for me in any way well it's funny that this movie was the one that elevated her to the Mm a-list and that turned her into a really celebrated and esteemed director because if you took away the sort of arty trappings of it the shaky cam the rapid editing if you shot it like point break it would be point break. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a story about a hot shot, uh, explosions expert. Who loves adrenaline? That's what he's always going for. He's taking off his suit because if he's going to die, he's going to die comfortable. I actually find that the story of Hurt Locker is a little bit less interesting than that of Point Break. Yeah. In that kind of approach of like, ah, the adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah, but it's this hotshot guy and he's up against his by-the-book team, mm. which is, you know, the, the sort of story that you see a lot. I mean, the fact that it, the movie has no plot it's, just, it's sort of a series of set pieces is kind of interesting. I guess maybe that's where this deconstructionist yeah. impulse comes in. That's why, like, if it was just those set pieces, mm. I think the film would be more interesting. Instead of the stuff that you're like, okay, I see where you're going with this, because right. this is just a trope. And because other than the big, long set pieces, there's not that much deconstructing going yeah, on. Yeah, I... I actually agree with you i think it would be more interesting if you basically knew nothing about these guys Mm -hmm. except their competence at their job yes you know because like when you're introduced to a character and you're like well this character exists only to die (laughs) and then he dies you're like okay that doesn't have that much dramatic weight for me it's interesting that this is one of the only iraq war movies to resonate Mm -hmm. this and american sniper i think are the only two iraq war movies that were big hits yeah you know if not immediately then over time and i think some of it has to do with the fact that i mean the the first wave of iraq war movies you'll remember were anti-iraq movies they Mm -hmm. were like in the valley of ella by the same writer i think mark bull or a stop loss or gunner palace those movies and this movie and american sniper are both sort of 
ambiguous, quote unquote. They they are not. I feel like the Hurt Locker is pretty anti Iraq War. A character looks around and he's like, "What what is all this stuff doing? Why is it here?" Well, yeah, okay. So, some of that some of that stuff is thrown in, but it's also a movie that's about it's ambiguous about the thrill of of war. Like it opens with that Chris Hedges quote, "War is a drug." Yes, and when and it's treated like a video game as well. Like Jeremy Renner shoots a guy mm-hmm. and he's like, um, "You don't get to play anymore," or something like that. And I think it's left purposely ambiguous as to whether we're supposed to think it's good that war is a drug. Like, mm. I mean, so that quote... It's the, bad. <laughs> well, that quote at the beginning of the movie signals that it's bad. But if you didn't have that quote at the beginning of the movie, you may look at this movie and say, oh, look at this, this cool guy who... You know, he may be reckless, but gosh darn it, he loves this country and he's a real man, you know? But the idea is that he doesn't... I mean, I think the movie gives you enough ammunition that he doesn't love his country. He's just doing it for the thrill of it. Yeah, Because but, he goes home, then he goes back at the end because this is all he knows. And it's not even specifically for his country. You never get any indication that, they, that right. they're doing something right or they're, they're doing something toward any kind of goal. But I think, in a way, that's what Catherine Bigelow admires about the Jeremy Renner character because, like... She she may not like the war, you know. Mm. She may be a liberal, but she admires the fighting spirit of these tough men, you know. I, I mean, I didn't see that, but mm. I guess maybe I'm maybe. giving her more faith than you are. I mean, the fact that she has stuck to these kind of like war themes, Hurt Locker onward, would lead me to believe that maybe you're right. Maybe she is interested in this, like Zero Dark Thirty, which we're not going to talk about because neither of us like the movie. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, well, can, can we address it briefly? Sure. It's boring. Yes. Uh, I mean, I remember liking it only because it was a, um, it's a Mad Mad World style cast of insane C-listers just in main roles. Like, hey, that's the guy from Torchwood in the Doctor Who show, uh, John um, Barrowman. I believe one of the Duplass brothers is in it. Scott Atkins in a non-fighting role, like sharing the screen. Um, I just... for- totally forgot that Scott Atkins was in it. <laughs> yeah, he, he's just there. So it must have been like, a conscious decision on her part and i mean chris pratt before he was chris pratt just when he was the um parks and recs guy as the the leader that goes into like um the final bin laden assassination Uh and we you know we might as well just address the torture issue Mm. which uh for those of us who have a chip on our shoulder about Catherine bigelow now (sighs) you know uh, i remember when i watched the movie i don't think do they get any information from the torture i feel they don't well they I think, I think they show torture, but they don't get. It doesn't lead them to anything. I think the movie takes on the. I, I can't quite. I can't yeah, remember, but no. I think the movie takes on this very studiously like neutral, objective tone mm-hmm. towards the torture. In taking on this neutral, objective tone, you endorse it. Okay, that that that's what I think. It's mm. like uh, so. You know, I hate to bring up uh, Glenn Greenwald, but he was the person who was like waving the the flag, calling accusing this movie of being propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he had a quote that I think is actually maybe pertinent. He said. It presents torture as its CIA proponents and administrators see it, as a dirty, ugly business that is necessary to protect Americans. Mm. And uh, I know Zizek also accused it of just sort of normalizing the idea of torture, yeah. which I think is probably true. Mm. But I haven't seen it since it came out, Me so neither. what do I know? Well, you've been listening to Michael and Us. Com- I'm Luke Savage. <laughs> Let's just say coming soon to an episode of Michael and Us. I'm, you guys are I'm watching sure, Zero Dark Thirty? I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll get it to it eventually. <laughs> it seems right up our alley. All right, so now we've gotten all the homework out of the way let's just jump to the fun stuff so, point break point break i uh, love it great film this is a film that i remember when i saw it didn't do much for me really? and i'll tell you why 
why. This is the same problem I had with all the action films I watched in my teens. It wasn't like a John Woo style, like... John Woo really ruined things for you, didn't he? <laughs> it did. <laughs> it's like I see the greatest art masterpieces in the world, and then they're like, oh, look at these other artists. And I'm like, oh, but the style, it's not like this. It's funny, I was watching Point Break this time and thinking this feels so much like a John Woo movie. It does in terms of the homoeroticism between the two ma- main characters. <laughs> in the, the idea that Keanu Reeves, this young, hotshot cop who wants to prove himself, and Patrick Swayze as this cool, laid-back dude who they see eye-to-eye as criminals and as the law. And, you know, for the record, robbing banks is a victimless crime. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but Patrick Swayze just takes it too far in this movie. Yeah. And there's that um, anecdote that comes up all the time that, like, Keanu Reeves would have played the Patrick Swayze wo- role and Patrick Swayze would have played the Keanu Reeves role. That makes sense on paper. And Castle Bigelow switched it and it plays even better that way. I think it does play better with them in their current roles because Patrick Swayze is is a more demonstrative actor than mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves is. So like he he it helps to have the villain be more charismatic, you know? And Keanu Reeves is though the like he's conflicted. Yeah, but I mean as an actor, he is the surfer dude like, "Whoa, man." Mostly yeah. because Bill and Ted put him in that position. Yeah, that's true. But then you see him as this like straight-laced FBI guy with charisma dynamo um G- Gary Busey. <laughs> Gary Busey. I think Gary it. Busey rules in this movie. By <laughs> Gary the way. Busey's great in yeah. this film. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the casting of this movie is really great because she's got these three actors who just are, are so into it. They mm. commit so hard and there's no irony there. You no, know? there's no irony. And that's what makes this movie work. And that's why it echoes John Woo's film so mm. much is that it is committed yeah. to its premise without a hint of sarcasm or like, ah, we're better than and, this. And I mean, I believe that Catherine Bigelow knows the movie's ridiculous, mm-hmm. but also that it doesn't matter. Yeah, yes, she she because she she loves it. She loves the bank robbers and she loves the, th- it, you know, just as she loves the thrill of skydiving and surfing, how very well she communicates the thrill of those things. Visually. Yeah, I think that's the most important part is that like this is about surfers and crazy guys, but it also shows you like this is fun. Yeah. You understand why they would want to do this kind of stuff. I mean, that skydiving scene where the actors are actually skydiving and you basically follow them down is unbelievable. It's and, pure cinema. And- and I didn't see the Point Break remake that came out a few oh, years yeah. ago. Why would you? But I can just imagine what it felt like. And it's not like that. Because yeah. there's never a moment in this film where unreality takes you out of it. Short of like, you see them like you see their faces as they're skydiving. You know no Cameron got that. But it doesn't matter. Because you know people were skydiving and doing this crazy stuff in the film. And she shoots the bank robberies like she shoots surfing and skydiving. You know, a lot of crazy long takes and a lot of one perfect shots. <laughs> well, the thing that I found so amazing about Catherine Bigelow rewatching all her films this week is just the sheer physicality of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until the Hurt Locker, she's like pushing it as far as it can go from a style standpoint and through the action scenes that are happening. Like the action scene that everybody talks about where um, Keanu Reeves and the FBI break into that um, drug dealer's den, mm-hmm. led by Vincent Klein, the villain from Cyborg, the uh, Albert Pune film. Of course. <laughs> um, there's so many little gags, like a guy getting pinned behind a door and shooting his mm-hmm. own foot. The fact that they like go through the window and then wrestle and almost get a face in a lawnmower. And then there's an incredible foot chase scene between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze right after. Her take on Raising Arizona. <laughs> right, where it's you know a handheld camera, much like the Evil Dead. You yes. Know, a camera going right through the neighborhood and I mean her films at their best are really unpredictable yeah. like 
anything can happen in them. And that applies also to the Hurt Locker, even, mm-hmm. you know? There's a feeling that anybody could die at any moment. You know, in that chase scene in Point Break, like, you were with them in that chase scene. And from a script standpoint, like, the movie makes such a great decision that, like, Patrick Swayze figures out that Keanu Reeves is an agent, and there's still, like, 50 minutes left to go to the movie. Mm-hmm. So you're like, what are they gonna do? And that, like, butting heads is why I think the movie is so memorable. If it had just ended with Patrick Swayze being like, no, you're an FBI officer, I don't think the movie would be as strong as it is. I mean, the skydiving scene is so good mm. because you know that he knows. Yes, and, and, and that Keanu Reeves knows that they know. Right. And they're just playing around with each other. Yeah. And Patrick Swayze has a character too. My memory of him was being like super cool and in control. And that's the way he positions himself. But you quickly learn that like, oh no, like, he's looking for something doing all this stuff, but he will also go too far. There's never a, like, oh, Patrick Swayze's just, like, a good guy and Keanu Reeves wants to take him down. Uh, by the way, another word about Gary Busey. Uh, of <laughs> Great in Silver Bullet. Of course you've seen Under Siege, yes. which he's in. And I just saw Lost Highway again. He's in it. Mm-hmm. And he has a, a scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas around the same time. And then that was about it for him. You know, he was in a bunch of these movies with with interesting, good directors. He's in Big Wednesday. Have you ever seen that one? Speaking of surfing, yeah, the John Milius one. Great movie. Great summer movie to watch. I just think it's a shame that Gary Busey has become like uh, a village idiot and a punchline. So supposedly Gary Busey got into a car accident and and he got brain damage. Yeah, Yeah. and things have not been the same since then. Well, you know, it's too bad. And I and I when you see how actually talented he was, Mm -hmm. I find it sad that he's just a, a figure of mirth now he's one of those guys that like you look at him and you go well he can't be anything but a character actor but like he can lead your movie or be a supporting role oh, yeah. because he's that strong and that charismatic maybe and he has that presence maybe we should check out the buddy holly story <laughs> oh his early film i've never yeah. seen it yet. yeah never mind <laughs> i'm very curious patreon episode maybe so other than point break i mean she also made blue steel which uh, I really enjoyed when I watched it this week, mm-hmm. and I know that you didn't get a chance to see it, so I'll just go through it as quickly as possible. You told told me it's like almost like her proto Me Too movie. Yeah, because it plays like a fever dream. Like realism doesn't really have a place in this universe in the sense that it's Jamie Lee Curtis as a cop on her first day on the job. She blows away Tom Sizemore, who's a criminal, and Ron Silver witnesses it all and he steals the gun from the scene and he starts killing people with the gun that Tom Sizemore had and framing Jamie Lee Curtis and no men will believe Jamie Lee Curtis that it's Ron Silver that Tom Sizemore had a gun no matter how much evidence or how many witnesses there were people are like oh no that's not what's really happening Mm. so it's up to Jamie Lee Curtis by herself to have to deal with the situation because nobody else is there and like she has a love interest with Clancy Brown and he actually gets injured instead of her so she has to step up again and it's just a really fascinating movie that um it would feel much different and would probably be very different if it was directed by anyone but her Mm -hmm. because her perspective on it just kind of like elevates all of it and her style, which is at full bloom here. People are constantly asking her, why are you a cop? Why would a pretty woman like you become a cop? And she's like, I like to shoot people. I like to jam people um, up against the wall. And you say that people are always like, telling her that she's making up the story making up the story nobody believing her like even tom sizemore when he gets shot and he had the gun in his hand there were a bunch of witnesses and they're like oh you know they probably they were seeing things you acted with too much force Mm -hmm. (laughs) just crazy stuff like that you also watched k19 the widowmaker i did watch k19 the widowmaker i 
I enjoyed it, but I can understand why people hated it. It's basically her come and see. Because okay. have you seen it recently? No, 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 no. So the film is about the Russians want to rush a nuclear submarine and they go do a test on it, even though that Liam Neeson is like, it's not ready, but Harrison Ford is in charge and they kind of just push it into the ocean and like, go do it. And everything goes wrong. The reactor fails. People at one point have to go into the reactor with no suits. So they're all melty and horrible and they die. This happens multiple times. It's just a parade of misery that she shoots like a crazy action film. (laughs) And at the end, the uh, people in charge, Harrison Ford, who made all these mistakes, gets honored. If I give this a bad faith reading, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, she does think these people are heroes. The film gives no ammunition. These people are terrible. But at the end of the day, history remembers that they were heroes and that they were good. While everybody else, the drones that had to go and fix the reactors, they're the bad guys. And I can understand people going to the theater. This was a big release. Oh, yeah. I believe it was the biggest independent film at the time. Oh, was it? It's a film that was produced by National Geographic, which I've never seen Whoa. at the beginning of a film. And that all it does is there's no villain other than Harrison Ford, which people probably going to see the movie thought he was the hero. Mm-hmm. And that anything that happens is just because of the shitty Russian technology and that the people in charge didn't take the time to check stuff and that it just all failed. And that the only people to blame are the bureaucrats, essentially. <laughs> the people running, you know, all the stuff. You sold me on it. I actually want to see it now for the yes. first time ever. If you go in thinking that's what the movie is, and she shoots it like an action movie too. It's like the camera swirling and crazy. Crazy. I can understand why people were pissed off, and I can also understand what she was trying to do, mm-hmm. and that nobody, you know, they didn't want that. Something that I noticed watching her movies this week is, uh, well, I mean, uh, you don't need strong powers of observation <laughs> to notice that they are all very long. Yes, and they are not. Blue Steel is like eighty-five and, minutes, and uh, Near Dark is near, ninety, near minutes, as 90 well. minutes or so. But a lot, okay, a lot of them are very long, and they're long in a way that you really feel. Mm-hmm. They do not fly by. You live in them, and the fact that they they don't unfold like you know perfect three act movies. There's there's they feel very accumulative. Mm-hmm. Like by the end of Point Break, you feel like you've really like when they're finally on that beach together and he's arresting Patrick Swayze, you're saying, oh my God, Patrick Swayze, give up. Holy shit. And her first movie, Loveless, is like 82 minutes. So she's like building her way up, making bigger. Sergio Leone syndrome. Yeah. The next one has to be bigger. It has to be like different. I mean, both Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty are designed, I think, to wear you down Mm. by the end. Like Point Break, you're like, isn't the movie over? And uh, as I'm watching, I'm like, I know it's not over because I know that they meet at the end one more time. Right, (laughs) right. And anyway, I definitely felt the length of 1995 Strange Days. I love Strange Days. I like Strange Days. It was everything that I wanted Southland Tales to be. <laughs> yes. It even has the same plot. It's about uh, a police shooting a video that everybody's after. So it's set in the distant dystopian future of 1999. Mm-hmm. And this was a movie that was made right after the L.A. riots. And so in this movie's vision of the future, the riots have basically never ended. And they're this constant state, like this din that's happening all over society. And, you know, the economy isn't working for anybody. Uh, uh, things, things are bad, folks. It looks like it's 2019. So people retreat into internet porn. Well, not actually internet porn. <laughs> they retreat into another a very topical thing at the time, virtual reality. Which is essentially GoPro footage. Yeah. Like, that's what it is. Uh, hardcore Henry-ish, if you will. Very much so. And Ray Fiennes plays this uh, sort of disgraced guy who 
is like the big the big mogul for this technology. But he's scuzzy. He's, he's like scuzzy. a rat, and he has no money. He's always like talking his way. He out may of as well be a drug dealer. But he's like he he provides everybody with this stuff, mm-hmm. and he gives little mini CDs that they can implant into this thing that goes into their head, and they get to experience other people's memories or recorded incidents, incidents that actually happen, and they mm-hmm. get to experience those. He himself is often revisiting memories of his times uh, having sex with his ex-girlfriend played by Juliette Lewis. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And at the same time, he's kind of exploiting his friends, uh, illustrated by Angela Bassett as a limo driver Mm -hmm. that he had once helped as a police officer. And he's kind of squeezing her dry, asking for favors, asking for rides as his life kind of spirals more and more out of control. And he had his good friend, Tom Sizemore, who could not be a villain in any way, right? (laughs) Can't possibly be. (laughs) And uh, it takes 50 minutes for this film to actually kick into its plot. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved every moment of it. And I didn't think I was gonna. I actually said, I don't want to watch Strange Days. When I started, I was like two and a half hours. I wasn't going to watch it either, but then you DM'd me and said it's like a good Southland tale. (laughs) So it's like, oh, okay, well, I've got a long train ride ahead of me. I'll I'll watch it. (laughs) Well, where Southland Tales doesn't give a good indication of the world, this one is all about the world. Like anytime someone drives down the street, there's people being beat up, fires. You feel like you could go into any pocket and stuff is happening. It's a stunning technical achievement. Mm-hmm. He's always going into these big like mosh pits and yep. stuff. And, <laughs> and LA has a Times Square-like New Year's celebration. So yeah, it's like a big Where's Waldo <laughs> But for all the setup that like the first 50 minutes play like um, Martin Scorsese Goodfellas, like the camera zooming around, everybody's doing stuff. It boils down to it's just a neo-noir mm-hmm. with like a femme fatale and a villain and double crosses and I can't believe it was you. I was a bit disappointed by the last 30 or so minutes of it. Uh, I thought it was fine. That's when it like cemented into that kind of, you know, the genre neo-noir reveal. And th- that physicality is still there in the action scene. Yeah, it was just such a conventional wrap up to a rather unconventional movie. The film has the perfect ending, which is chaos erupts mm-hmm. and chaos continues. And instead it fucking a deus ex machina that would never happen. I'm a, we're gonna, I'm going to spoil Strange Days here. You've had 25 years to see it, folks. So basically, they're all looking for a um, video where a kind of political figure rapper is killed by the police. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at first, I'm like, what difference would it make if they released the video? According to this film, chaos is going on the streets <laughs> at all times. Yeah. But okay, to buy into the film, it wouldn't make a difference if this video were released. Mm-hmm. And Angela Bassett is like, we need to put this out. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than you. This is like the police doing this stuff. And I think the script makes a very smart move um, that it reveals that it's not a premeditated murder. It was just violence that came out of nowhere like in the moment which is yes usually how these things happen Mm -hmm. (laughs) suddenly a riot breaks out at the end of the movie where the the people that are celebrating the coming year 2000 are disgusted by like these police officers beating angela bassett Mm -hmm. and rodney king style. style everybody goes bad and then suddenly the commissioner of the police stops things and goes, I watched the tape and you're right. Arrest these men. What the fuck is this bullshit? That's bad. This yeah. would never happen <laughs> unless it's like a weird. I mean, there's given a lot of credit that like Angela Bassett and Ralph are just going to be taken off to the side and killed so they can sweep this under the rug. <laughs> yeah. That would make sense. But like there's a movie building to the video being released and chaos just breaking out and it just never does. And it, that feels like studio notes that were like pushed across the table. Yeah. 
One thing I do like about the movie, though, is it feels prescient in the way that you've got the society collapsing around you. And so people increasingly retreat into uh, fantasy. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, online mm-hmm. or in or I don't know what, what podcast podcast <laughs> porn. Yeah, that's you know, right. Whatever. I mean, the, the way that porn, for instance, has evolved since that. It's literally what it is in Strange Days. Exactly. It's become much more intimate. I mean, I don't have a VR headset yet, but soon, right, Will? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And you could uh, hook up your flashlight and <laughs> uh, you don't even have to move. What if that flashlight goes wrong, though, and just rips your dick off? Oh, it's like uh, in modern times, the feeding machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> except it was VR pornography. Uh, if only Charles Chaplin were here today to bring that to life. <laughs> He'd probably be in prison as well. All right. So, <laughs> uh, hopefully. And her last film, Detroit, I did not see. Didn't see. It looked like a chore. <laughs> yeah, it did. But I think that, like, I mean, we didn't even talk about the fact that for a long time she was just derided throughout her career. Like, you found some articles. Well, we won't say who wrote them, but oh boy, were they rough. Yeah. <laughs> like, Well, before The Hurt Locker, you know, her, her best movie was this sort of culty thing. Uh, near or the movie that was considered her best movie was Near Dark, mm-hmm. and Point Break was not respected. Blue Steel, in the reviews I could find of the era, was just treated as a slasher film, mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of deconstruction of this idea. Like Jamie Lee Curtis being in the scenario is not an accident, considering that she was one of the people who started the final girl tropes, mm-hmm. and now it's like going head to head with what that actually means. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would hope that she doesn't make more films like The Hurt Locker, but looking at her upcoming films, they seem to be more war pictures i feel like that's where her kind of interests lie like she you know she took things as far as they could go as action films and now she wants to make something real and that translates to stuff like the hurt locker which doesn't interest me that much mm-hmm. uh, maybe it will one it's day it's also not even real so no yeah. it's not <laughs> but it's the illusion of realness sure. right something like detroit or zero dark 30 mm-hmm. or the hurt locker we're presenting it as it is i'll tell you what's real the emotions i felt watching point break <laughs> at when, the end when patrick swayze goes out for that one last serve <laughs> did you you felt emotional i definitely felt it yeah <laughs> uh, well i mean i hope people revisit her films especially blue steel and strange days just buckle it knowing what you're getting so last week on the podcast we talked about our first blu-ray release the dragon lives again um we didn't expect it to sell out <laughs> we did not but it did yes so, uh we, there will be more releases mm-hmm. i'm gonna try to do monthly i mean if there's interest there mm-hmm. and i mean people haven't gotten it yet they may be like what is this garbage and throw it up against the wall well you've got a good commentary yes. uh, coming your way but yeah uh, justin's gold ninja video label will have a various yeah uh, basically the way that we're things we're splitting it is it's if i'm doing it monthly it's going to be an important cinema club kind of like poverty rowish kind of thing. A bargain bin, yeah. a public domain uh, special and, edition. And then kind of public domain, gray markety uh, films from around the world. Mm-hmm. Mostly martial arts pictures. Stuff that readily available on YouTube. This is what I want to say to people is that like the movies that we'll be releasing, you could watch right now. Because mm-hmm. this is stuff that we haven't remastered. And that is just out in the world. You're paying for the special features. So mm. if you bought that Dragon Lives Again disc and you're expecting like a widescreen remastered version <laughs> of the movie, uh, buckle up because that's not what you're getting. But uh, folks, uh, look for the Easter eggs. Yes, look for the Easter eggs because there is something that is worth the price of admission mm-hmm. or two somethings. Yeah. Uh, but one specifically that, oh boy, you're very lucky to have that. That's a good one. Anyway, uh, more releases coming soon. Yes. And because so many people asked me and I, 
it's something I don't want to do because I put a number on it, like 125. But like a lot of people were like, it sold out. Like I just listened to the episode today and it was gone. And it was. I released it on Twitter before I dropped an episode. And that was my mistake. I did not think it would have that kind of reaction. And that I th- this is something for important Cinema Club listeners. Like that's who it's for. So from now on, Patreon subscribers will hear about the release first. Mm. I'll make sure that'll be the first place where they can hear about it. And I'm also doing a mailing list. If you go to goldninjavideo.com, you can sign up for it now. It's right at the top. And we'll let you know when a new release is being put out. And if you're on Patreon, I am going to release a handful more uh, discs. Not that many. I have to look at how many left I have printed. For Patreon subscribers, just message me on Patreon if you would like a copy, and I will direct you to where you can go up until I have no more. And then I'll have to be like, I'm sorry, we're sold out. But it, you can just go watch the Dragon Lips again on YouTube. It's on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, I did um, go and make sure it was properly matted at the correct frame rate and yeah, yeah. change the titles. But yeah, it's on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, we'll have more coming up. Yeah. And the next one is something that we've talked about before and that we both love. We haven't revisited in a long time, and I'm very excited to. It's to gonna do... be. It's gonna be fun. Yeah. Yep. All right. So uh, letters. Do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail And our first letter is from Tristan Wheeler, and it goes, "Hey, gang." I've been a fan of your podcast since I moved to Toronto in early May. Maybe it's something in the big city air that awakes one filmic consciousness to your show. I don't think that's true, actually. (laughs) Either way, thank you for giving me place to learn about weird, bad, and amazing movies that litter this world inside and outside of the mainstream. I do, however, have a question. Where do you stand on cinematic reimaginings? for lack of a better word, movies where a new or the same director takes a movie's essence or idea, but does something completely new with it. I ask because also I don't love it. I haven't been able to shake Guadagnino Suspiria since I watched it in December. That's the Suspiria remake. Yes. Yes. Thanks for the balcony, Tristan. (laughs) Well, I think it doesn't happen that often, actually, because for the most part, you know, movies are uh, part of a franchise. And and they don't want to move out of it. Exactly. So you get a movie like, I don't know, the amazing Spider-Man or something like that, which is just the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, but not, not as good. What about, uh, Len Wiseman's total recall remake? (laughs) Yeah. Or I don't know, probably the point break remake. Yeah. Nobody watched it. Um, I mean, in a perfect world, if you want to remake a film and you're just doing it because, uh, it's a valuable IP that the studio wants to exploit in some way, Mm -hmm. you would reimagine it like, He did Suspiria, which people did not like. I liked it. I haven't seen it. Um, But like, I don't know, David Cronenberg's The Fly or uh, Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Both movies that have very little to do with the original, but are variations on a theme. Yeah, the basic template, and then you make it your own. That's the most interesting remake. But nope, all most remakes do is want to remind you, wouldn't you rather be watching the original version that you like? That's right. (laughs) And they'll keep making them and it doesn't really matter because nobody remembers them. Mm -hmm. Do you know that there's a Jacob's Ladder remake that's been sitting on a shelf for five years? Who's in it? I don't, I don't know. No, but just sitting on the shelf. Nobody cares. Yeah. It'll come out. People will forget it. It's like um, most films. When you say Total Recall, nobody goes, ha, yes, the one was Colin Farrell, right? Or they they never say, which one? Yes. (laughs) Like when I was- Robocop. When I was looking for Point Break on the streaming platforms and I clicked it and it started and I went, what is this? This is not Point. Oh yeah, there was a remake. It had completely fallen from my mind until I was watching. Same thing happened to me this week. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, reimagine remakes. If you're going to make them, why not just do that? But 
just just make new movies. Just, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> there will never be a new movie ever again. <laughs> nope, never again. I mean, the live-action Lion King just was uh, Disney's biggest live-action movie ever. It's not live-action. It's, it's animated. A, it's a cartoon. There's no live-action people in it. I guess nope. there's some grass in it that's real. <laughs> no, it's all computer-generated. They didn't even shoot real locations. Okay, well... It, it's animated. <laughs> yep. All right. So this week on the Patreon, we're talking about another reimagining. <laughs> uh, by popular request, we've turned we've returned to the oeuvre of John Landis. Yep, we're watching Blues Brothers 2000. Why did we do this? I explained it in the episode. I still don't understand. <laughs> I texted you, regretted it instantly, and offered a different choice, and you went, no, 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 let's do Blues Brothers 2000. I wanted it. I wanted it. <laughs> yep. So for $5 a month, you can listen to that at patreon.com slash important cinema club and next week's patreon is going to be the listener choice it is going to be a listener choice um we'll just say it when we do next week's episode but remember if you're a patreon subscriber you could we i could message you and be like what movie do you want to do and also like i said that if you want a blu-ray and you don't have one you're like i missed out if you're a patreon subscriber you know you could get one so become a patreon subscriber when you listen to this message me and if there's any available i'll send them to you there's a lot of ifs there but (laughs) you know when we started this blu-ray project i thought i would sell maybe 10 (laughs) so like (laughs) i actually said when that page went live i went i should have made it 100 like that's a round number looks better i thought 125 was a little much too (laughs) but clearly clearly not people loved it and the thing is i make them on demand as well so i just had to make 125 of them over one weekend so next week what are we doing will we're doing another great filmmaker gerard damiano oh yeah gerard damiano let me just look at him on letterboxd wait a minute almost none of his movies are on here what is this will gerard damiano is the director best known for 1972's deep throat (gasps) a porn director and as you pointed out probably our first porn and nothing but porn director, right. except for one film, Legacy of Satan. We've talked about Roberta Finley. We've talked about Radley Metzger, but they also made a large number of mainstream films. But Gerard Damiano, he's in the muck. He, yeah. he is a straight up porn guy. But he considered himself elevated above that. And he was somebody who, after the success of Deep Throat, used his clout to try to elevate the genre, to try to make artier, more experimental porn. Uh, I would say porns that are not very erotic. (laughs) Oh, well, that's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? (laughs) You know what? You're right. (laughs) Even though there's yakety sax music playing over some of the scenes. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, some of his most uh, well-regarded movies include The Devil and Miss Jones, Story of Joanna, Memories Within Miss Aggie, a very Bergman-esque film. Yes. Um, His 400 Blow Skin Flicks, which was recently released by Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, Of course, Vinegar Syndrome is putting out Let My Puppets Come, his very strange all-puppet porno. I would never have bought it because I know it's not good. I haven't seen it. But the package they put together, I'm like, well, I guess I got to get it now. Oh, I've already pre-ordered it. (laughs) Yeah, you have. Well, Let My Puppets Come, I I have seen it in the 45-minute version. Mm. This is the fully restored 75-minute version. And I got to tell you, your patience wears in the 45-minute version, so I don't know what those extra 30 minutes are. <laughs> probably sex. Well, <laughs> uh, puppets, fucking, yeah, probably. Yep. Uh, oh, uh, check out the Satisfiers of Alpha Blue, folks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but be, be wary. These are hardcore films. Yeah. They're all hardcore pornography. Listen, we know everybody listening to this masturbate, so you, you can handle yeah, it. Yeah, you've seen this shit before. Yeah, Come on. you have. And I'm really excited because, like, I've seen a bunch of his films, and, like, when he's on, he's on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to watch... Memory 
memories within Miss Aggie. Um, Story of Joanna and I think Devlin Miss Jones. Yes. And, and Deep, Deep Throat. Throat. We're yeah. going to have to talk about right. it. That was one that he dismissed as well. It's he, an hour long. Yeah. And he was like, ah, it was just a lark that I did. Yeah. Like, I'm just making a bunch of porno films. Yeah. So if I'm not that active on Letterboxd this week. That's because <laughs> you're watching nothing but pornography. Just, just masturbating furiously. <laughs> but taking notes at the same time. With my one free hand. <laughs> With your one free hand. I'm a double hander, so it's a little tougher for me, but I can do um, a voice to text. Already a very serious discussion about the aesthetics. <laughs> well, I think that like pornography is very interesting with the context around it. Like Once you push away the like, ah, they're just fucking on screen. There's so much to dig into he- that people don't talk about. Like even Gerard Damiano is barely interviewed. Like I was looking. Oh yeah. And like there's almost nothing other than Roger Ebert uh, interviewing I've got him. a DVD of Devil and Miss Jones that has mm. a commentary track yes. by him. And it's just people don't give it any yeah. respect other than places like the Rialto Report, which yeah. we haven't mentioned in a long time. Well, I mean, Gerard Damiano was interviewed extensively in like skin magazines in yes. the 70s, none of which is easy to find. No, exactly. Uh, but, you know, we're bringing it back into the mainstream. That's right. Uh, so that's what we're doing next week. And until then, I am Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, just to um, provide a quick reminder that if you haven't followed us yet on Facebook, to uh, please do so at The Important Cinema Club, just in the search bar. You can follow me on Twitter at DeCloux J, D-E-C-L-O-U-X in letter J, or Will at Will Sloan ESQ. I'd also like to thank all of our new Patreon subscribers, and that includes David Stockdale, Matt H., Sutter Kane, Apple Ventus, John Megan Jr., James Cullen, Imalco, John Meyer, Jack Fenor, Matthew Thomas, Richard Harris, Ian Moss, Adrian Mary, Alex Smith, Alec Nelson, Austin Lancaster, Devlin Nicholson, Daniel Roth, Mark Douglas, Andy Stone, Joseph DeLeo, Evan D. Amaral, River Donaghy, Hildum96, Sweet Comrade, Daryl Atkinson, Adam Hart, OBD Films, and Zachary Hilton. Thank you very much for your support. This podcast could not continue without you. And now back to the regular scheduled programming. Well, I saw Hobbs and Shaw this weekend, Fast and Furious Presents, and I saw it in a theater where the the chairs, you could actually recline them. Not D-Box. You Uh. could recline them, though. Like, it it was a lot of leg room, and if you press a button, like, it it comes... So you saw the Rainbow Rainbow Cinema, or Imagine Cinema, Market Square. And and your seat uh, leans back... And that was the perfect way to watch it. Uh, just it, let the movie happen. In the Coliseum. Just let, throwing let, them to the lions. Let, and just, just lie back so you don't even have to hold your head up. And then the movie just pummels you with pure sensation. I was excited for Hobbs and Shaw. I like Dwayne Johnson. I like Jason Statham. Yeah, there's a missing ingredient in there. His name is Vin Diesel. Yes, there is. And, I mean, you cut to the chase is that I'm like, finally, the weight of Vin Diesel, who is so lame in the Fast and the Furious films. And I should say, I love the Fast and the Furious films. Mm. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. I won't get into it. Love them, love them, love them, love them. And these two characters spinning off, sure, that'll be fun. It's directed by um, the guy who did the first John Wick, Atomic Blonde, and Deadpool 2. You know, he's an action choreographer. There'll be good action. Yeah, I'm excited. And I saw it, and my friend summed it up perfectly. It's like a two-hour MTV Movie Award opening. Yeah, it feels very, like ephemeral yes and just like not a real movie no weight no weight to the action scenes it's not there if you know what i mean like it's not fun enough you don't like the characters they're bickering in a way that's just hateful hey you can put on these pants 
Sorry if it's a little roomy around the dick. Yeah. Listen, mate, let me tell you something about dicks, huh? You ain't got a dick. Yeah. That's the banter. And it feels almost disconnected. Like they weren't on the same set and they didn't know what the other person <laughs> was saying. And did you read that article that came out on like Financial Times or whatever, where it said like Vin Diesel, The Rock, and Jason Statham would like only let so many punches land oh, yeah. on each of them and they want to stand up. And when you watch a movie like Hobbs and Shaw, you're like, yes. I can see that on screen. There's no, like, coherence to the movie. No. Um, and the thing about Vin Diesel in these movies <sighs> is he takes it very seriously. Did we talk about Return of Xander Cage when it came out? Did you see it? I did see it, yeah. And I enjoyed it. Uh, it was I really, lo- really ridiculous. I love Return of Xander Cage. <laughs> and it's a perfect example of why Return of Xander Cage, every member of the creative team is taking it incredibly seriously. Hobbs and Shaw, they're taking it as a joke and they're like winking at the audience. And they're also like, okay, well, this is a a good business decision in this movie. There's an insane amount of practical stunts in Xander Cage as well as CG that is the perfect CG where it's like Vin Diesel jumping out of an exploding airplane being like, I I love this. (laughs) Yeah, I live for this shit. (laughs) And like Vin Diesel is so awesome in Return of Xander Cage. I like the part in Xander Cage when he's like gonna have sex with five women and he's like I live for this. No, he doesn't. What was it? I, I, what the things I do for my country. Yes, he uh, slept with women and knocked them unconscious because he's such a powerful lover just to get his fur coat back from the first movie <laughs> and he's like, the things I do for my country. I mean, Vin Diesel, he's a very heterosexual man. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure he is. Wink, wink. Uh, uh, there's no rumors. He loves going having sex with women. <laughs> yep, and he also leaves them branded triple X skateboards. <laughs> the film opens with a little boy going, you bring the world to a Sander Cage. It's amazing. And it really shows that Vin Diesel was that, he's, he's the glue that keeps those Fast and the Furious movies yeah. together. It's, sorry, it's sad that nobody likes to be in a room with him, but oh, you know, yeah, they hate being in a room with him. Sometimes real artists are difficult to deal with. <laughs> Brando Vin Diesel. Exactly. Did, you, did I ever tell you the story that I heard from like a friend of a friend that Vin Diesel, like Return of Xander Cage, like that's his passion project because he was being booted from the Fast and the Furious. And that another passion project he made was that long gap Chronicles of Riddick sequel where people hated him on set. And at a certain point, Vin Diesel like just turned to someone and was like, why does everybody hate me on set? I don't get it. And they're like, you arrive four hours late. Like you're not communicative with everybody. You're difficult. Why do you think nobody likes you? But really, that's where great movies come from, I guess. I think so. I mean, he's got the talent to back it up. <laughs> Do you remember that for years he wanted to make a movie about his real passion project was a movie about Hannibal crossing the Alps and uh, he was going to play Hannibal? I forgot that. He, like 15 years he wanted to make that. <laughs> At the top of his IMDb. I mean, I've told the story before, but uh, bears repeating. You know that Rob Cohen called... Um, <laughs> Steven Spielberg and asked like because Vin Diesel's in Saving Private Ryan he's like yeah how is Vin Diesel to work with like I'm thinking of casting him in Fast and the Furious and Steven Spielberg went there's a reason he dies first oh. 